Try that. How's that? Mute was off. <laughs> well, um, just uh, want to first uh, thank you all for uh, your prayers for myself and my wife. Uh, we're doing good. My wife is improving all the time, and uh, she's uh, still uh, rather weak, but uh, uh, compared to what she was a few weeks back, she's uh, making really good progress. So we do thank you for your prayers. Uh, well, my uh, uh, assignment uh, for the today is First Peter chapter 5, 6 to 12. Actually, 14, but uh, I'm just going to 12, so maybe Darren could wrap up with the next last two verses there. And uh, if you've been tracking with this sermon series, uh, you already know that Peter was writing to believers in Asia Minor who were experiencing the first waves of persecution. And uh, they uh, uh, were about to, uh, at least in the in the near future in their lives, experience uh, an intensified type of persecution uh, when Rome uh, really took it on to uh, wipe out uh, Christianity. Uh, and so Peter wants to uh, find some final words to encourage these people who are probably wondering, what are we going to do uh, with all this persecution? What, what's going to happen to us? And so he, uh, he writes uh, certainly the whole letter, uh, but uh, my task this morning is uh, the last part of, the, of chapter 5. And so I just want to read that passage as we start. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober mind, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> so three things that Peter, Peter says here, and this is kind of like the, the outline for what we're going to talk about this morning. Trust God. Stand firm, look forward. Trust God, stand firm, and look forward. Now, the passage begins with a call to humility, but if uh, you uh, were listening to the sermon last week, you know that Chad jumped on that topic, and uh, he actually did a really good job of that. So I don't think I'm going to add anything of significance to what he said about humility. However, I thought it might be important to identify the one thing that makes it almost impossible for us to be humble. It's uh, pride. And pride is the antithesis of humility. It's part of our fallen nature. We all have it. And it's what the ancients said was the mother of all sins. And pride really is a result of replacing God's rule in our hearts with, with our own rule. It's really a literally the idolatry of self. And pride, uh, we find in in scripture and in life is really all about making comparisons with other people and always coming out on top. Uh, Jesus gave us a good example of what this might look like in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. So if uh, you're able to quickly turn there, I just want to read that passage to you because he gave us a really good example of both pride and humility. And so in this uh, passage, Jesus tells this parable. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and looking down on everyone else, there's pride. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus had this comment. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so we look at that passage and we see that it's true that God resists the proud, but shows grace to the humble. The problem with pride, of course, is that we can't see it in ourselves. Uh, We can see it in others. And often when we do, we, we resent it. And I would say that probably the majority of the people here would rejoice when a proud man, a proud or arrogant person, conceited person is taken down a notch or two and is actually is humiliated. It's kind of like the story that uh, I'd share with you now. There's a, um, a church was holding a farewell uh, party for their pastor who had uh, served for 15 years. And uh, the program unfolded and people were coming up to the open mic and sharing tributes and uh, acknowledging the things that had happened under the pastor's leadership and giving him thanks. Uh, towards the end of the meeting, the, the chairman was looking at his list of people who were supposed to be there to share and uh, he uh, had already the, opened the, the floor to a few of the uh, leaders in the community and the mayor and a few other important people and uh, the bottom of the list was a politician but he hadn't shown up and so he handed it over to the pastor to make up his final uh, comments. So the pastor got up and he said, you know when I first came to this church, he said, I really wondered what I got myself into. You know, on my first day in the office, this man came into the office, sat down in the chair across from me, and told me he was having an affair, cheating on his wife, and he was facing legal charges for fraud at his business. But you know, after that first day, he said, you proved to be a very wonderful congregation. I've really enjoyed my time here. And as the pastor was about to say a few more comments, also this man walks into the sanctuary, dressed in a very nice suit, walked up to the front, interrupted the pastor, and began to apologize for being late. And he told them, of course, that he was a, uh, a politician and he was looking after the, the welfare of his constituents. And he just said he had been in a very important meeting. And you know, I do lots of important things. And he began to unfold some of the big things that he thought he'd done. And then he stopped and he put his arm around the pastor. And he said, you know, and I want you to know, folks, on the pastor's first dear day here in this church, I was the first person to visit him in his office. <laughs> Pride goes before a fall. Okay, let's get to the text. First, trust God. So in verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time. And the reference here to the mighty hand of God is uh, from the Old Testament, and the first time it shows up is in Exodus chapter 13, verse 9. And it's used there in reference to God's power to deliver his people and rescue them. And so uh, this picture here that Peter Peter is presenting is the mighty hand of God who's the one who rescues and delivers and and lifts us up. And he says, humble yourselves before the mighty rescuing hand of God and then he will lift you up in due time. And so if we humble ourselves, of course, then that means that God won't have to do it and nobody else will have to do it. And uh, one of the ways that we demonstrate humility, according to Peter here, is, is that we do it by trusting him. We humble ourselves before God and trust him. So Peter identifies uh, in these first two verses, verses 6 and 7, two areas in which we can demonstrate our trust for God. His timing and his care. 
So first we demonstrate our humility by trusting God's timing. He will lift you up in due time, or the right time, or the appropriate time, or the proper time. Uh, And we have to remember here that God is the one who determines the timing of when and how we will be lifted up. Uh, Being lifted up could mean, uh, depending on your situation, it could mean that you'll be vindicated, that you'll be exonerated, that you could be rewarded, that you will be rescued, that you will be restored, or healed, or whatever other help you might need at the time. We humble ourselves by trusting his timing, not ours. And you know, it's uh, probably not easy for most of us living in this uh, day of uh, modern technology and uh, instant on, instant off. We, We want things to happen quickly and according to our timetable. And I would say that most of us have a really strong dislike for waiting, to be patient and wait. We want things to happen sooner and not later. And if God does not want do what we want him to do in the time we want and in the way that we expect, we become frustrated and we begin to take matters into our own hands and try to fix the problem ourselves. Like Abraham and Sarah of the Old Testament. And you remember, they got tired of waiting and so they came up with their own plan to try to fix the problem. And we know, if you know the story, that did not work out very good for them and for following generations either. But if we humble ourselves before God, we will trust his timing of things. Second Peter says that we demonstrate our humility by trusting God's care. And uh, we, see, we see that when he says, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Now the recipients of this letter were, of course, they were persecuted, they were facing hardship, and uh, they were suffering for their faith. And they were anxious and worried, fearing for their lives. And uh, We have to acknowledge that worry can consume our thoughts. It can create stress in our lives. It affects our health. It can affect our relationships. It can rob us of sleep. And so Peter invites the recipients of this letter to cast all their cares, all their anxieties, all their worries on a caring God. The word cast, uh, we find in scripture here, means to throw or to eject or to propel vigorously. So the picture here is that casting all our anxieties on the Lord is like peeling off this heavy, heavily weighted backpack of worries and cares and then throwing it down at the feet of Jesus. Not laying it down or setting it down, but throwing it down at the feet of Jesus. And when we do that, when we cast our anxieties onto the Lord, then it also means that we, we leave it there and we let it go. It's not that we throw it in the lake of God's love and then go around and and try to drag the lake and bring it back up again like like we're so tempted to do. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the problem that that caused the stress in our life or the anxiety will actually go away. God doesn't necessarily promise to take the problem away, but he promises to take the stress away. And so, we cast our care on the one whose shoulders are strong enough and whose heart is caring enough to bear them for us. And when we do that, when we trust him, and when we let those anxieties go to him, then we're able to sleep at night because we trust him. However, on the other side of the spectrum, if we really don't trust God fully, it's not likely that we'll be able to lay or pass over or let go or throw off our cares and anxieties onto the Lord. It's most likely if we don't trust him, we'll still carry those burdens ourselves and carry the anxiety that comes with it. 
So Peter says, trust God. But then he says, stand firm in verses 8 to 9. And here it says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So Peter says here, be sober and alert. Watch out for your adversary, the devil, because he's out to destroy you. And Peter warns us, he gives us this picture of a ravenous lion out prowling around, hunting, searching for someone to devour and destroy. You know, a lot of people believe that there's a God, but they do not believe that there's a devil. You know, there's generally two extremes regarding the existence of the devil. On one hand, those who ignore and deny the existence of the devil, believing that he's merely a, a figment of a, a superstition from past generations that has no place in modern-day thinking man. On the other end of the, of the pendulum, there's those who are obsessed with the existence of the devil, and they blame him for all their problems and all the problems in the world. But neither, one is, neither of those extremes is supported in the Bible. When we turn to the Gospels, we read accounts there where Jesus engaged in spiritual battles with the devil. For example, his encounter with the devil in the wilderness. Or the accounts of Jesus confronting and casting out demons. And we see it in his teachings when he warned his disciples about the devil's tactics and his final judgment. The Apostle Paul referenced Satan's activity in trying to prevent the spread of the gospel. The devil was re revealed in great detail in the book of Revelation. It's all over the New Testament. He's described as the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, the enemy, the deceiver, the prince of darkness, a liar, and the father of lies. He opposes God in everything God does and stands for. And stands for. He is the enemy of our souls, an antagonistic opponent who seeks to defeat and destroy us. And so Peter warns us to watch out to be vigilant and to stand firm. In other words, watch out for the ways that he's trying to defeat and destroy what God is doing in your life. Pay attention to your weaknesses, to your habits, and to your blind spots because Satan can use them to gain a foothold in your life. And then if there's pride in your life, it's like giving, giving him an open door and a loaded weapon. So Peter cautions us to watch our spiritual lives and not live carelessly to take our faith seriously and also take the enemy of our soul seriously. I found this quote in one of the articles I was reading and I think it's, it's worth repeating today. Sloppy living makes us sitting ducks for prowling lions. I thought, that's, that's good, isn't it? Sloppy living makes us sitting ducks for prowling lions. And so Peter stands, tells us to, to be alert, stand firm, so that we will not be blindsided by the devil. And then he gives us two ways that we can stand firm. First, we stand firm by resisting the devil. The good news is we do not have to be afraid of the devil because Peter tells us that we can resist him when we stand firm in our faith. We're all in a spiritual battle. But the word of God tells us not to be afraid, not to run away, but instead we're to stand firm in the faith and resist him. I have some verses from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 13, where Paul talks about the same thing. He says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take, take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after, you have done everything to stand. And he's on to describe the, uh, the, the armor of God that we can put on as Christians to stand against and resist the devil. Um, I, I wonder when you read Peter's words here, when he's talking about watching out, if he isn't in his mind thinking about his own experience. Back in the garden, on that night, that dark night when Jesus was betrayed. And you remember in that time that Jesus took his disciples to the garden and he told them, Peter, James, and John, to watch and pray. And then he went to a little bit further, bowed down, and he prayed to his father. But then in uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 30, it says that Jesus returned and found the disciples sleeping. And he said these words, Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you would not fall into temptation. And we know, if we know the story, it wasn't not more than probably a few hours later that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus or had anything to do with him. And if he had prayed, maybe he wouldn't have given in. So when Peter tells us to watch out, to stand firm, be alert... He's probably building a little bit on his own experience that awful night when he betrayed the Lord because he wasn't watching and he wasn't cautious. He wasn't vigilant, even though Jesus had asked him to be. So first, we stand firm by resisting the devil. Second, we stand firm by remembering our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith. So another way that persecuted believers, um, at least in Peter's mind here, could resist the devil's attack is by remembering that they were part of a larger family of believers who were experiencing the same kind of suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 states that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it comes with the territory. It's part of the uniform of the Christian. And I believe Peter is reminding them that they were not alone in their suffering. The devil would try to isolate them and make them feel alone and helpless because then, then they would be easy prey. And isn't it true? When we get alone, when we got struggles and we don't have anybody to talk to or nobody to turn to, when you feel that we're all alone and completely isolated, aren't we then vulnerable to the devil's attack? And so Peter encourages them to realize that they were part of the larger family of believers who joined them in their suffering and suffering for their faith in Jesus knowing that they're not alone in their suffering and that they were in company with many other believers who are doing the same kind of persecution would help them to stand firm in their faith. In the news media today, we hear a lot about solidarity, the word solidarity, and that means a group of people standing together for the same cause. And uh, we see this here in this this passage. Peter is calling to them and reminding them that they are in solidarity with other believers who are enduring persecution and, and are standing firm. And if they could do it, so can you. Now, even though our lives are relatively free of persecution here in Canada, uh, we're called to remember those who are suffering the pain of persecution in other parts of the world. More Christians are persecuted in the world today than any time in history. 
and you'll never hear anything about it on the news media, but Christians in other parts of the world are suffering and dying every day. You might hear the story of a dog that got, got ran over in England, but you'll never hear anything about the Christians who are suffering and persecuted being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Christian women and girls abducted and raped, homes and churches burned to the ground, believers beaten, tortured, imprisoned, driven from their homes, living in forests, losing their jobs, and even the right to draw water from the village wells or buy food at the local marketplaces. Hebrews 13, 3, exhorts us and pleases us with us to remember the persecuted believers in our world. As if you were with them in prison and experiencing the same pain they are experiencing, and then to pray for them. I wonder if we do that. Remember our Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Trust God, stand firm, and then look forward. Verses 10 to 11. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. These powerful words have become a benediction, often read at the end of a service or sometimes at the end of a funeral, sometimes at a graveside. There are powerful words of hope for any situation, but especially for those who are suffering. Peter introduces us to the God of all grace, not the God of some grace or the God of a bucket full of grace, not the God of a truckload of grace, but the God of all grace, unlimited, overwhelming, generous, overflowing grace. And this grace is for everyone and for every situation. There's grace for the gardener, grace for the farmer, grace for the teacher and grace for the student, grace for the parent and grace for the child, grace for the janitor, grace for the CEO, grace for the convict, grace for the prison guard, grace for the employee, grace for the employer, grace for the rich and grace for the poor. There's grace for everyone who's willing to receive it. God is the God of all grace. But then Peter reminds these persecuted believers that the God of all grace has called them to his eternal glory. Just as Jesus called the disciples to follow him, the God of all grace has called us, all believers, to something greater than this world can ever offer. He's called us to receive salvation, to be part of his kingdom, to enter his eternal everlasting glory. Peter tells these suffering, discouraged believers to look forward, set their minds on things above, to focus on the wonderful glory that awaits them in heaven. And he calls them to look above and beyond their present sufferings and hold on to the glory that's waiting for them all at the end of the journey. There are better and greater days ahead for God's people. And then Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you. There's two things here. First, God himself will restore us. He won't send someone else to do it. He will do it personally. He will do it himself. Isn't that something that the God of the universe will himself restore us? You might buy a product at the store and have a problem with it. Do you think you could get very far if you called the CEO of that big company and tried to lodge your complaint there and get some help? Do you think you could dial the number and the CEO would pick up and say, here, I'm here to help you? Not a chance. But the God of the universe will himself restore you. And then Peter, say, Peter says that their suffering will last for a little while. 
We do not know how long that little while is. But there will be an end to the suffering. For some, it'll be a short time. For others, it'll be a longer time. And for some believers, it will end in their death. He may bring relief and restoration here on earth or one day in heaven. But there will certainly be an end to the suffering. In light of eternity, it will not last forever. It'll be just a little blip in time immemorial. In Revelation 21, 4 tells us that one day in heaven, he, that's God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now these dear believers needed to face their persecution by fixing their minds on the joyful glory that awaited them in heaven. There's suffering here, but glory there. There's shame here, but honor there. There's failure here, but victory there. There's weakness here, but strength there. There's sorrow here, but rejoicing there. There's an end to our suffering here. It will be replaced one day with an eternal glory that far outweighs our temporary suffering here on this earth. I close with this story. In 1952, a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick attempted a 26-mile swim from the California coastline to to the Catalina Island. Fifteen hours into the swim, a thick fog settled in, clouding her vision and shaking her confidence. She told the crew in the boat beside her that she didn't think she could complete the swim. They encouraged her to press on, but after one more hour, she called it quits, and they pulled her out of the water and into the boat. As she sat there in the boat, she discovered that she was only one mile from the coast, one mile from finishing the swim. Two months later, she attempted it again, but this time she prepared herself. And the way she prepared herself was she sat in the boat just a little bit off the shore from the Catalina Island and looked at the shoreline. And she fixed her vision on the shoreline and fixed that in her mind, what it looked like. And when she attempted her swim, again, the heavy fog set in. But this time she had in her mind a vision of the end, a vision of the destination, a vision of that shoreline that she was going to arrive on. And she finished the swim. She made it. And you know, later on she went on to swim that, make that swim two more times. And later on she became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. And I think that's probably a good illustration story, what it is that these persecuted believers and all of us need to do. That's what we need to do when we're going through difficult and painful, overwhelming circumstances. We must fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We must continually look forward to the eternal glory that waits for all those who belong to the Lord. And you know, all through the history of the church, when believers go through hard and difficult times, they've, they took pen and, and paper and written songs and hymns and stories that reflected their, their faith and reflected the vision they had of the, of the glory of heaven one day. And it seems that vision in the mind and hearts of believers has allowed them to go through the worst of times, the suffering that comes with this life, and particularly the suffering that comes with persecution. So I read this verse again. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, 
will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What are your eyes fixed on? That's the thing that I heard the Lord saying to me through the Spirit so clearly while Bob was preaching. Darren, what are your eyes fixed on? What are they fixed on? Are they fixed on the problems or are they fixed on the Creator? What are they fixed on? Because He will if we're willing. Like God will be faithful to us if we're willing to be obedient and faithful and wait on Him. He will. So what, what are my eyes fixed on? This week, I was reading through Matthew, and I got to Jesus and Peter walking on the water. Peter's in the boat, and Jesus is walking across the lake in the evening after he'd spent time praying on the mountain. And they have this encounter where the disciples are terrified seeing Jesus walking upon water. And Jesus calls Peter, come on out. What Peter does, he steps out of the boat and it says that Peter walked on the water and came out to Jesus and then Peter saw the wind. I just imagine him hopping out of the boat and walking towards Jesus and then when he got there, he looked around and his eyes just came off of Jesus and saw all the reasons why he shouldn't be able to stand on the water. Down he went. And just I hear that from the Spirit. Darren, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't let your eyes be drawn to the wind. Don't let your eyes be drawn to the waves because they'll crush me. I'll doubt Jesus. I'll look at my surroundings and my circumstances and all of a sudden I'll start to doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness to me and my family and our church. That's why I think the Holy Spirit is calling me through this text this morning to keep my eyes on him, to stand firm, to cast my anxiety on him, to keep my eyes on him. Let me pray for you before we go. Father in heaven, is this from you? I pray, Lord, that if, if this feeling you've placed on my heart this morning, keep my eyes on you. If that's from your spirit, would you confirm that to me? Lord, what is it for our church that you're trying to say and trying to teach us? Lord Jesus, what would you have for us? Where are you leading us? What do you want us to know? Lord, we cast our anxiety on you. We seek to be close to you. We want to know you. We want to reach this community. We want to encourage one another and show one another your love. What does that look like in this world of discouragement where everything around us is trying to pull us away and distract us? Lord Jesus, what does it look like to keep our eyes on you? That's my prayer for myself, Lord, and for our church family that by the power of your spirit, whatever thing is on the minds of the people in this room and at home, that is keeping their focus and their attention and their trust from being holy on you, would those things, Lord, just grow quiet and dim? 
And would our focus on you become so clear? Would that be the driving force in our lives? What we see when we look at you? Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement this morning. Thank you, Lord, for what we've sung and what we've prayed. Lord, would it impress on our hearts what you've called us to be, and would we be faithful to be that this week, wherever you place us? Keep our eyes on you, and would we be a great blessing to every person that we encounter to show them this undeserved love that you extend to us, this grace. Would the Lord bless you? Would the Lord keep you? Would his face shine upon you? Would he give you peace? And would you find rest in him? My prayer for you, church. God bless you. Amen.